Hello and a warm welcome to Econoday Unplugged. It's Tuesday, 6th of September 2022. And it's that time of the month for another of our global roundups. So on the podcast today, we have Terry Sheehan on US East Coast, Max Sato in British Columbia, Bron Jackson in Sydney, and I'm Jeremy Hawkins in London. Last Friday, the group of seven industrialised countries announced that they would be implementing a price cap on Russian gas. Exactly how that might work without the cooperation of China and India remains to be seen. But Moscow's response was to signal a complete withdrawal of supplies to any country involved in the agreement and also indicated that its key Nord Stream 1 pipeline to Europe would not resume until the West lifts its, its sanctions. In financial markets, European gas futures climbed more than 30% at Monday's open. And while the euro fell below 99 US cents for the first time in two decades, itself adding to eurozone's inflation problems. In other words, the energy problem is getting worse. And for some parts of the world, the cost of living crisis is serious enough to force the same governments that were hoping to draw back the spending surge caused by COVID to loosen their purse strings again. In fact, already more than 80% of all advanced economies and about 40% of the emerging and developing economies have introduced measures to help tackle the crisis. So in today's podcast, we'll have a look at the economic damage being caused by soaring energy costs and the impact it's having not just on monetary policy, but on fiscal policy too. So as usual, let's kick off with the US first. So Terry, I mean, in Europe, all the talk is about possible, if not probable recession. But on your side, it's been another month and another decent US employment report. So I guess from a policy perspective, it's still all about what the Fed will do. But before we get to that, not many weeks ago, you had gasoline prices reaching record highs, natural gas, I think, what hitting a four year peak and uh, electricity grid warnings of con- possibly controlled outages being likely as well. So is there any kind of obvious energy fallout going on on your side now? No, um, at the moment, Good we're, answer. Still, we're still seeing declines in petrol prices here. Uh, our reliance on natural gas is as a fuel for industry and for heating and such is less than in many countries. So so far that hasn't been bad the other thing is um, thanks to climate change we've had an exceptionally warm bout of weather so um, people aren't really thinking about their heating costs for cooler weather yet so as far as the u.s goes we're actually in reasonably good shape as far as our energy prices go. They are still elevated compared to a year earlier, but they're not as bad as they were back in March and April. Okay, so fiscal side, not the most important part of what's going on stateside, but okay, let's turn to what's happening to inflation then, because quite clearly what's being on the energy markets has had a major impact there. So what's happening in terms of demand, etc., is going to have important implications for the Fed. So I mentioned the intro, the August employment report, how would you view it? Because overall, after what we saw in July, it seemed to come across as suggesting that the US is doing okay. That would be the surface reading of it. Um, the if you average the two months as the first two in the third quarter, we're still seeing growth in jobs somewhere around 350,000. That's great. Um, the uptick in the unemployment rate, uh, not really significant. And in fact, a good indication that the labor market is starting to achieve some of the balance that the Federal Reserve has been looking for. Uh, 
with the declines in some household energy costs, uh, inflation looks to be easing up. Um, so right now, the U.S. seems to be in okay shape. But not so okay to the extent that the Fed might consider we're thinking we're perhaps not so far away from the top end of the, the peak to interest rates? Oh, uh, the Fed is definitely on course for further rate hikes uh, until it sees what it calls a sustainable improvement in the inflation situation uh, and inflation starts moving reliably back down toward the 2% target. Uh, Almost certainly a 50 basis point increase at the September meeting for the FOMC coming up. Uh, Maybe as high as 75, depending on what some of the other economic data reports do this month. Okay, so what are the key sort of reports between now and the next FOMC meeting, which might decide the balance between 50 or 75? Well, the two I would keep an eye on are the CPI report for August and the retail and food sales for August. If it looks like the CPI is continuing to ease up, that's a good thing. The Fed might not have to do as much of a rate hike to address inflation. Um, And if retail sales is at least modestly expansionary, then it looks better for growth in the third quarter. So um, I, I think, although there is, some of the Fed policymakers would like to go 75 basis points just to front load some more of those increases. Um, they also don't want to overdo it. So I think that um, 50 basis points still shows that they're absolutely on track to bring inflation down without overdoing it this time around. All right, let me ask you the really difficult one then. Do you think it's possible for the Fed to engineer a soft landing? So to get inflation back down to target without actually pushing the US into, let's say, what the what you, your side might call a recession, given that, you know, according to European standards, you've had a couple of quarters of negative growth already? Yeah, uh, I think it's possible. Um, Chair Powell's called it a narrow path, um, and it it's really is. Uh, Some of the um, indicators we've seen for the manufacturing and service sector actually show these are not in recession right now. They're narrowly expansionary. So those things are doing all right. Uh, The drop in the housing market is probably the bigger concern with, you know, sales of houses being down, construction being down, and of course, all the services that go along with home buying. Uh, But that hasn't fallen as much as it might have. Um, And while some economists for the housing sector say we're in a housing recession, it could be a fairly shallow one. Um, Consumers seem to be adjusting to higher mortgage rates and where they can, they're taking advantage of greater supply. So there is still activity in the housing market. 
Okay, interesting stuff. And a lot of the other housing markets starting to show some sign of decline dotted around the world now. Um, lastly, something I'd like to ask you, and I can kind of guess what you're going to say, because you normally say well, it's not that important possibly to Fed policy, but is important <laughs> to certainly central banks elsewhere. And that's uh, what's going on with the dollar, because quite clearly something which, you know, one of the, you know, the trend moves in financial markets during the course of this year has been the strength of the dollar. And that's been certainly exacerbated, I suppose, by recent developments, particularly going back to Jackson Hole, as we talked about on the podcast last time. So today we saw the, the trade weighted dollar index rise further. It moved above the 110 mark, a level not seen since June 2002. Is that going to have any bearing upon what the FOMC might do with interest rates? Or is it just simply something which other central banks like in the UK, the ECB, Australia, Canada, whatever, have to take on the chin because of the implications it might have for their inflation rates? Um, I, I think that the Fed policymakers look at it, but I don't think that that has any huge influence on the decision that they'll make. Fair enough and a solid answer. Um, anything else from your side, Terry? No, I think those are the main points. We've just come off a holiday weekend, so things are a bit slow at the moment. Yeah, we don't get this Labor Day holiday over here. It's really unfair. Right. Excellent. Thanks for that, Terry. So let's get across to Mr. Sato across the border then in Canada. Right, Max, um, we've been used to, well, strong Canadian data for a while now. Um, and I guess that energy independence means that Canada in many ways is certainly a good deal more isolated from what's going on um, in oil markets and gas markets compared to the likes of Europe and some other parts of the world. But Let's play devil's advocate here. Second quarter GDP growth weighed in at 3.3% on a quarter on quarter basis, seasonally adjusted annualised rate. That's weaker than expected by the markets and also below what the Bank of Canada was expecting in its July monetary policy report, which was looking at what 4% from the right lead. August manufacturing PMR is below the 50 growth threshold for the first time since June 2020. And inflation in July fell from 7.6, sorry, sorry, fell to 7. 6%, I should say, from 8.1%. Also, this Friday, when we get the August labour market report, that's expected to show another decline in employment. So I suppose the question for you then is, is the economy still doing well enough to justify the 75 basis point hike in Canadian or Bank of Canada interest rates, I should say, tomorrow? Uh, the short answer is yes. Um, I don't see any... Um early signs of uh, recession or even um, um, extreme uh, slowdown in any sector yet. And um, I think uh, the fact that Canada's uh, GDP had um, showed a solid growth uh, in the second quarter compared to uh, south of the border where they had the second straight contraction uh, is that uh, maybe the U.S. recovery was so quick and Canada is still playing catch up. All right. Let me ask you about the housing market. Terry mentioned that and said the housing market is not actually perhaps doing that badly stateside. Um, I know for the Bank of Canada, there's been fairly significant concerns about you know, the buoyancy of the housing market for a long time and the, the ongoing accumulation of debt. I noticed today there was a report out suggesting that uh, credit card balances have climbed to their highest level since the end of 2019, as we've got households struggling to pay their bills. So consumer debt is now rising alongside mortgage debt. Might you think that could have implications for just how far high uh, Bank of Canada interest rates might go? 
I think um, uh, the Bank of Canada has done uh, sufficiently um, aggressive um, uh, job to uh, help bring inflation down. It's not showing in CPI data yet, but um, I think the uh, very hot uh, housing market is cooling off a bit. But still, if you see the signs and listen to what uh, real estate agents are saying, people are still buying and selling, and there's actually a shortage of um, affordable housing supply in major cities. So um, I think uh, activity is going to still going on. Uh, we'll see housing market um, prices maybe coming down. Maybe people are postponing um, um, getting a mortgage right now. But I think uh, it, the situation is uh, hardly um, um, a sign of a recession. Okay. Now let me move across to the currency if I can do. I mean. Traditionally, we've seen the Canadian currency kind of moving in line as a lot of the petro currencies do with what's going on in terms of oil prices. Um, we've got a Bank of Canada, which has been amongst the most aggressive central banks in terms of hiking interest rates. We've got a domestic Canadian economy, which by all accounts, as, as you have just been saying, appears to have been doing pretty well. And yet we haven't really seen the Canadian dollar appreciating that much, particularly against its US counterpart. Um, um, do you think there's been some kind of structural shift away from simply looking at you know, commodity prices and oil prices and the Canadian dollar? Or is there something else we're missing in there? I think the uh, um, it, it really reflects the uh, general uh, strong sentiment uh, towards buying U.S. dollars globally. Mm -hmm. um, that's one thing. But the other thing is uh, Canada is always discussed in terms of a um, uh, resource um, economy, but it also has uh, manufacturing and service. So um, maybe there's uh, uh, there are times when uh, Loon is detached from uh, the typical resource economy um, um, movement uh, seen in Australia and New Zealand. Mm. Okay, yeah, fair point. I mean, it's interesting at the moment just seeing, you know, which of these relationships still actually carry and which have, uh, have actually broken down. Okay, uh, that's the last thing I was going to ask you, Max, but anything else you want to put in from your side on Canada? Um, I think uh, what we are looking at uh, tomorrow's Bank of Canada's announcement is not just the mm -hmm. size of the uh, uh, what seems to be one of the last hikes in this current cycle, initially anyway, uh, but also the uh, statement uh, that comes with it. Um, last time, um, the bank said the governing council continues to judge that interest rates will need to rise further. That's very in a clear Mm -hmm. uh, uh, statement and the pace of increase will be guided by the bank's ongoing assessment of the economy and inflation. So, um, if they go with 75 or maybe a remote chance of 100 again, um, what 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 are they going to say about what to do in October or possibly in December? Are they going to say still say um, interest rates will need to rise further, or they have to make it a little more vague? That's that's the focus right now. Okay, um, it may be an unfair question, but where do you think the um, the, you know, the the target overnight rate might end up when it reaches its peak? Uh, tomorrow, if they do raise by 75, it'll be 3.25. Uh, consensus here is a uh, 3.5 and wait, so that's 
75 tomorrow, mm-hmm. 25 in October, but maybe, maybe not in December. And right now, what we've heard from the governor is he wanted to take the uh, uh, overnight rate, a key rate, to um, just about around uh, uh, the top of two to three percent range that they see where the neutral uh, uh, interest rate should be. Okay, watch this space, as I say. Right. Well, I'm not letting you go yet because we're going to move down to South and Asia and Japan now. Um, now, again, just trying to stick with this fiscal side of what's you know, the implications, of what's going on in energy markets. Now, Japan, I guess, is no stranger to energy crisis anyway, particularly since we had the what the tsunami going back to 2011 and the meltdown in the uh, Fukushima uh, nuclear plant. So I guess uh, governmental intervention, perhaps not the biggest thing in terms of energy markets for um, for Japan. They seem to be more in case of encouraging businesses and households to to, you know, lower their use of, I know, air conditioners and avoid other power-hungry appliances. Is that a fair comment or you know, is there more we should be looking for Japan when it comes to you know, trying to deal with what could be for them, given that they had to import so much energy, a potential energy crisis too? Well, I understand the uh, energy component um, has the biggest uh, contribution in July for national CPI. Um, mm-hmm. It was a positive 1.22 uh, percentage point, which is the biggest uh, factor among other things. Uh, but then, uh, if you take a look at the gasoline prices in the CPI data, um, they're up only 8.3% from a year earlier, which is slower than 12.2 in June. And that's because the government has been uh, providing subsidies to refineries to bring the uh, retail prices down. And if they, if the, the international markets uh, shoot up again, then government is going to provide more money to keep the uh, uh, retail prices uh, uh, stable. So um, it's it's not really a gas gasoline prices. Now, what's really hurting the uh, households is um, electricity and the city gas prices. For example, um, electricity bills up 19.6% in July and gas 24.3%. Uh, so that's really a, a, a more concerning uh, um, thing for the, the average household. Plus, if you take a look at the uh, the range uh, of um, price hikes, uh, a lot of um, uh, items in both fresh food and processed food and also higher utilities uh, um, feed into um, uh, higher prices uh, uh, through, um, you know, the maintenance costs of the shops and restaurants and offices. So uh, it's really widespread now. And I think people haven't really seen total CPI up 2.6% from a year earlier for for a long time and core 2.4. And then, when it comes to monetary policy, it's still uh, not stable. Uh, it's just a temporary factor uh, driving the prices up. So uh, whether the Bank of Japan is going to change its uh, policy framework, it has to discuss for the government. Mm-hmm. And what we see is um, um, continued uh, um, easing stance under Kuroda until he retires uh, next April. And his deputy, uh, Amamiya, 
is the uh, the architect behind all those uh, easing measures. If he takes over from him, there may be a slight chance that um, uh, this whole locked-in easing, still targeting two percent, may change. But that that may be a long shot. All right, then I'm going to go back to something I ask you on pretty well every podcast, just in the hope I might get a different answer. Um, when we come to the currency markets, uh, not so very long ago, we had Dolly in well, testing and then moving above the 130 level. And you were saying that wouldn't alter BOJ policy quite correctly. Then we went through 135 and you still said BOJ policy wouldn't be impacted quite correctly. Well, as of where are we? Well, back end of last week on Friday, wasn't it? We saw Dolly M move above 104 for the first time in, well, an almost quarter of a century. Now, from what you're saying about you know, the impact on inflation of imported, imported energy prices, are we now finally getting to the stage whereby the level of a Japanese yen could have some implications for policy in Japan? I don't think there's going to be an uh, uh, impact on monetary policy. As I said, uh, unless the the framework changes, uh, they cannot really turn to tightening from easing or even uh, being neutral. And if you take a look at the, um, for example, producer prices, uh, CGPI issued by the BOJ, and import prices, um, in contractual currency base uh, on the basis of uh, contract currencies, um, producer prices, import, index was up 25.4%. And if you take a look at uh, the same category on a yen basis, that's more 48%. So there is um, a negative impact of um, uh, the value of the currency losing a lot. But it's it's at least for big exporters uh, it's good for them to convert dollars and euro into um uh, more yen and the the only problem is uh most of the people work for smaller companies and domestic demand oriented companies are uh, obviously suffering because of high costs mm-hmm. so in that case putting everything together um that's not going to really uh, turn Japan's negative uh, output gap into neutral or positive anytime soon, which means uh, BOJ is going to have to maintain the easing, easing policy stance uh, for for now, um, especially when um, real wages are still falling. So bottom line, it was seen that dollar yen could still have further to go. Okay, well, that's it from me for you, Max. Did you have anything else you'd like to put into the pot before we move on to Brian? I think um, everything we see in reports from Japan is um, about uh, a close relationship uh, between the ruling party and uh, Unification Church mm-hmm. and also public furor over uh, Prime Minister Kishida's decision to uh, hold a state funeral for the assassinated uh, former Prime Minister Abe. And there is no uh, clear decision-making process explained and why a state funeral, funeral according to what legal grounds. So that could shorten his, uh, uh, what previously appeared to be a stable uh, government and his uh, approval ratings have been falling. So it's going to be interesting to see how he's going to steer 
through the um, fall session of, the, of Parliament and and into uh, uh, the main um, uh, debate on the next fiscal year's budget uh, starting in January. OK, brilliant. Thanks for that, Max. Right then, let's get to Mr. Jackson in downtown Sydney. So, Brian, if we kick off with China. What have we got? Well, in recent weeks, we've had, indeed, even today, cuts in key interest rates, FX reserve requirements, uh, $44 billion stimulus package. Um, and yet we still got a, a Bloomberg survey at the back end of last month uh, where the forecast for GDP growth was revised down from where are we previously 3.9 percent to just three and a half percent this year. So still well below what the official target is. So is it the case now that all this COVID zero stuff is effectively means that meeting these targets is now simply out the window or is there still some kind of hope? Well, I think it will just continue to depend on public health conditions and uh, you know, how authorities in Beijing, uh, how confident they are that they can start to relax uh, some of these uh, zero COVID policies. Uh, you know, they've just shown every indication that uh, you know authorities right across the the country are prepared to to you know to to lock things down and and to reimpose restrictions every time there is a uh, another uh, outbreak somewhere. So. Um, if, if that continues, then yeah, it's going to continue to have um, you know a predictable uh, impact on on economic activity and 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 yeah, make it hard to 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 meet those growth forecasts. But we've had a lot of well, it seems to be what is it? All 31 of the mainland provinces have recorded, I think, at least one COVID case over the last you know, several days. So it seems that this policy, let's see, but bottom line, isn't working. As long as it continues, it's going to prevent you know, the Chinese economy from attaining the kind of productive potential that it could do, which obviously would benefit the rest of the world too. Yeah, it's uh, you know obviously the decision making process uh, in in Beijing is is pretty opaque, so you mm -hmm. don't really get a lot of explanations about you know what what they're thinking about could change or you know what 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 they think could change their their approach. You know what what sort of metrics are they looking at to to justify a, a, a real significant shift in in their response to to outbreaks. So you know without that information, it's really hard to to know when they will actually uh, you know. Flip, flip the switch and and, and start uh, you know prioritizing uh, you know the the economic impact rather than uh, just continuing to to be very heavy-handed on on public health restrictions. Yeah, sure. Okay, I mentioned say that they well, I think um, in your uh, your highlights piece in uh, Economy Days calendar, you're talking about uh, another cut in FX reserve requirements. Now, is that an indication that they're actually getting a little bit concerned about the level of the currency, or is it just all part and parcel of a kind of a, a more generalised easing process to keep the economy going? No, I, th I think that you know they are concerned. Uh, you know, we I think. Um, you know the the currency is sort of around a two-year low against the the US dollar, um, and there's been some pretty sharp moves um, uh, in, in recent months. Yeah, mainly um, driven by uh, you know for for instance the the lockdown in Shanghai and you know that and, and other sort of one-off events. But um, you know we know that uh, you know that Beijing is trying to um, you know open up uh, the flexibility of the exchange rate. Uh, you know more than what it used to be, but they still don't like to see big moves uh, and sustained moves in, in one direction. So, um, you know that's you know, you know the watchword is you know exchange rate stability. They they want things to be generally uh, orderly and and uh, smooth. And so if uh, if it's going too far 
going too fast in either direction, they're going to try and uh, uh, step in and, and act against that. And so I think that's what we're seeing here. Okay, fair enough. Um, anything else from China before we move across to Australia? No, I mean it's it's you know we're continuing to see the the uh, the PMI surveys just show pretty subdued conditions um, uh, in in both the manufacturing and and services sectors, um, and so that's you know obviously having foreign effects around the world. You know I think uh, a lot of the the inflation problems that we're seeing around the world are, you know can be um, uh, you know, tie back to the supply chain disruptions that are being caused by, you know, what, what's going on in China and, and large sections of, of Chinese industry just not uh, producing a potential. OK, fair enough. Thanks for that. Um, right. OK, let's go to your neck of the woods then. Reserve Bank of Australia earlier today hiked by another 50 basis points, which I guess was pretty well in line with expectations and kind of intimated that there's more to come. Tomorrow, or is it later on my time? I always track with these changing time changes between uh, your part of the world and mine. But anyway, we'll get the second quarter GDP numbers about Australia. Do they but actually in five hours from about now? Oh right, okay. So um, do they actually matter now, or is it still all about inflation as far as the RBA is concerned? Yeah, I, I think uh, they'll. You know, obviously people will pay attention, but it is it's it's very much backward looking, and uh, already uh, you know the focus I think is on. Uh, on other issues, what it should do is show that um, you know growth was uh, pretty solid in in the second quarter. You know, mainly uh, reflecting a uh, sort of bounce back from some of the the public health restrictions that we had in place early in the year um, uh, with the Omicron variant. So, you know, I, I don't think though that they will play a, a big role in in policy going forward. But it will be just obviously encouraging that um, you know we had a solid quarter uh in in the second quarter of the year it's also obviously predates um largely the the move by the rba to start tightening policy uh they started in may um uh and so you wouldn't have expected that to have an impact really on on the on the q2 growth numbers okay fair enough i'm gonna ask you about housing um i saw some comments the other day um from uh people certainly the banks in, in in your part of the world offering some warnings about just how far and how quickly the rba should be tightening and that really came down to the fact that you know australia has a relatively high percentage of home loans at variable rates compared let's say to the likes of the us um certainly the likes of the uk my part of the world anyway so there's a real risk that they start well say start raising interest rates aggressively clearly they have been but it could be the case that the economic impact of rising interest rates from the rba comes through that much faster than it might do in the likes of the us or the likes of the uk um what sort of weight do you attach to that oh absolutely i mean uh, that that's probably going to be the main um uh you know channel that monetary policy uh works through the economy uh just uh you know the the impact that's going to have on on household finances, household confidence, and and household spending. If if mortgage rates keep on going up and and people's discretionary income uh, takes a hit because they they have to service their mortgage, so mm-hmm. uh, that that's clearly the, the 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 main downside risk going forward. And you know has obviously been identified by the RBA. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, a, you know, obviously a very big political issue as well, and uh, it's uh, you know getting a lot of attention. That so you know you've got higher mortgage rates uh, coming through, but obviously also just high energy prices and and you know the cost of living in general is, is a real issue, and so real incomes are, are taking a hit, and that's going to yeah be a, be a big factor in just how well the consumer holds up uh, over the next 12 months. 
Okay, just quickly then going across to this this cost of living issue. As I mentioned sort of the intro, there's you know, there's a whole range of countries now which have been doing various things to try and introduce some kind of helpful households or price caps or you know, whatever it may be. Has the increase in energy prices actually had any real implications yet as far as Australian fiscal policy is concerned? We, we will. I mean, the, the incoming government um, you know, has sort of only been in office for what, three or four months now and they'll be doing their budget shortly. And, you know, you could uh, expect to see some sort of uh, measures put in place to try and help, uh, you know, particularly, uh, you know, low income households deal with with, um, with the cost of living. Um, but, you know, clearly there are uh, restraints that will be on them because, you know, we've already had, you know, the, the big fiscal response during the middle of the pandemic, which is, mm-hmm. is going to tie their hands to to some extent. So, um, you know, th- I think people do understand that, you know, obviously the, the very loose fiscal policy that we've had over the last couple of years is, is indeed one of the factors that have, have contributed to uh, the inflation issue that we're now dealing with. And so that does uh, limit the ability to keep on going back to that sort of policy response. Yeah, it's going to be interesting for a lot of these governments, I think. OK, last question for me on, on for you on Australia anyway. Um, this takes it to the CPI then, which obviously has been the you know, the sort of a, the main focal point of policy for such a long time now. I saw that the uh, the Bureau of Stats will start to release a monthly inflation estimate. Um, I think it's from, was it October time? Now, yeah. is this something to do with the fact that the, you know, the, the, the RBA forecast was been so badly wrong, like most other central banks, or is it just simply a recognition of the fact that um, inflation is such an important indicator for policy that needs to be updated more often than a, on a quarterly basis, or what's going on with that? Oh, I mean, it's probably both both those things. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, we, we have seen in, in recent years the, the Bureau of Statistics, um, you know, lobby for, for some extra resources and, and uh, to try and, uh, you know, produce more timely data. Um, you know, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, it would be very helpful for policymakers and, and everyone to have uh, more timely inflation numbers. It's, it's obviously the, the key factor that uh, the RBA looks at and, um, you know, many other, uh, you know, developed nations manage to, to produce monthly inflation numbers. So it'd be great if we could do the same thing here. Okay, yeah, not before time, I suspect, as far as many yeah. um, investors think anyway. All right, let's shift across the um, the water to uh, New Zealand. So what have we got with since we last spoke, I think, the RBNZ, um, another 50 basis points up to 3%, six straight rise on, where are we, 16th of October, if I remember it rightly, which was very much in line with expectations. Not as expected, though, was after we had a decline in retail sales in the first quarter, we had another decline in the second second quarter. Um, so what is the risk now that perhaps the RBNZ might be overdoing it and we could end up with a technical recession in New Zealand? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, they, they, they are probably one of the first central banks to to start tightening. Yeah, you know, as you said, they, they started in October. I think Korea, South Korea, maybe went in August. So, um, you know, it's, we've had a longer time for the 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 impact of those uh, of policy tightening to to filter through into the economy. So, you know, again, as is so often the case all around the world, the 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 shifts in some of the data have been really tied to uh, just changes in public health restrictions rather than sort of underlying 
issues. So um, that will give them a, a bit of confidence. I think that the underlying strength of the economy is, is still resilient once you know you, you clear away some of those public health restrictions. But yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the, the whole point of monetary policy tightening is to slow the economy, mm-hmm. uh, and it's hard to fine tune that exactly to to you know to make sure that you don't um, uh, go too far. So yeah, you know, I think that's that's definitely a, a risk. But yeah, you know, I think it just also highlights that. Um, uh, even though they were one of the, the first to go, they, they've still had the same sort of uh, pick up inflation that you know that we've seen in other in other uh, countries. You know, if you look at the the, pro, the quarterly profile of inflation for New Zealand, it's pretty similar to um, what we've got here in Australia. Even though you could argue that the Reserve Bank of New Zealand uh, was more prescient about uh, inflation risks, you know, going back 12 months ago, and 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 definitely moved faster than the RBA. Uh, to start tightening policy, you know, they, they they moved faster, but they've still got, the, you know, the same sort of uh, pickup in inflation that we've had here in Australia. Mm. So I mean, I think what the RBNZ was talking about was it something like a four percent um, peak for inflation rates middle of next year. Do you think that's reasonable? Or do you think now there might be signs that that might be too high? Well, uh, as long as inflation, uh, you know, stays above uh, where where they want to be, I, I think the risk is that they they keep on pushing high with, with rates. Um, you know they they've they've got a pretty clear uh, you know focus on on getting inflation back to target. So um, you know it'll, it'll just sort of uh, depend on whether we start to see um, you know those inflation numbers start to to go in the right direction. Yeah, sure. Okay, fine. Okay, that's it in terms of my questions. Anything else you want to put in from your side, Brian? No. Um, you know it's uh, you know I, I think it's important to just. Uh, you know, keep the focus on on inflation right across the region. Um, that's obviously what central banks are uh, looking at. And so, um, as you said, the, the fact that we start to get monthly numbers in Australia will, will be helpful. Um, but uh, um, you know, at the at the moment, the bias uh, across most of the region is still very much uh, towards uh, tighter policy. Okay, great. Thanks for that, Brian. Okay, let's round up then uh, with Europe, where I guess the surge in energy prices has been felt uh, the hardest and where both central banks and governments have been forced to act. So in terms of Europe, um, we're just quickly looking at the um, Econodays ECDR, Economic Consensus Divergence Index. Um, There's a difference at the moment between the the overall activity index, which stands at minus six, and the inflation adjusted index, which takes out price shocks at minus 36. And essentially, in a nutshell, the gap between the Two shows that the main positive surprises in recent data have been very much in the inflation indicators. So all the more reason then uh, to expect the ECB to, go, to come out and raise interest rates again this week. Uh, the August flash inflation figure uh, for the eurozone was up at 9.1 percent. Now it's up from versus versus where are we? 8.9 percent previously. The core 4.3 percent versus 4.0 percent. Both above market expectations and indeed both new records. And indeed, if you look just across the region as a whole, Estonia now, uh, the Baltic country, is running at fully 25.2%. And even the Bundesbank now is warning that the German inflation rate will probably be above 
percent uh, this autumn, and that's completely miles above the kind of threshold for pain uh, that the Bundesbank would normally operate with. And indeed, they're even intimating that they expect to see something with a six in front of a decimal point as far as 2023 is concerned. So looking to um, Thursday's ECB meeting then, market's really quite split at the moment between a 50 basis point hike, uh, as we saw in July, or even a record 75 basis point hike that even a few weeks ago, most would have dismissed as being absolutely a non-starter. So because there is a good deal of uncertainty about what the magnitude is going to be, there should be a reaction in uh, in either direction according to what to, according to what happens. As I mentioned in the intro, the euro has been struggling and I'd guess that a 50 basis point increase now will probably see it weaken even further, whereas 75 basis points should actually give it at least some limited near-term support. So while um, rising prices and interest rates make for steadily increasing likelihood of recession, it's putting increasing pressure on the governments to do something from the fiscal side. And as we continue to see, well, effectively, uh, oil prices rise, gas prices rise, and a lot of the energy supplies coming out of Russia simply being turned off now. We're starting to see a lot of the European governments actually respond to uh, the problems from the fiscal side. So Germany, uh, well, they've introduced already emergency legislation to reactivate a number of their closed oil and coal power plants. That's against this supposed move towards green energy as far as Europe's concerned. The government's also just agreed a third relief package, which will be worth some 65 billion euros, um, extending transport subsidies and tax breaks for energy intensive companies. But it's got to be said that if you pull all this little lot together, it's still only worth about 2% or so of GDP. And that compares to the 15% of GDP support package, which are issued during the course of the pandemic. So there may well still be somewhere to go. Anyway, across the rest of Europe, um, what have we got? Sweden and Finland, well, they've launched collateral support packages for their energy producers. And a cap on fuel prices was announced unilaterally by Slovenia. France is also capping retail energy prices. And for note, in terms of inflation worriers, that's one reason why French inflation is currently at the bottom of the Eurozone ladder. Uh, Their HICP rate, the Harmonised Index Consumer Price Inflation Rate, uh, currently stands at 6.5%. That compared with 8.8% in Germany and 9.1% over the Eurozone as a whole. It's also renationalised its main electricity supplier, EDF. Estonia, Luxembourg and the Slovak Republic, similarly, they've announced measures to reduce electricity prices. And with regards to this, worth noting in particular, this Friday, there'll be an emergency EU energy ministers meeting, which will try to come up with some kind of regional policy that changes the whole structure of a European energy market. Now, news that that meeting was going to take place when it came out last week had a sizable impact on gas futures prices. So what comes out on Friday could be important. Anyway, the bottom line to all this little lot is that um, we're going to see a big increase in some of these government's budgets as a result of the support packages they're putting through. Much the same applies to the UK, whereas luck would have it, we have a new Conservative leader and hence a UK um, UK Prime Minister as of today in the shape of Liz Truss. She was a former Foreign Secretary. Now, at this stage, um, the details are kind of vague, but Truss has said that there will be an emergency cost of living crisis package announced in the next few days. Rumours have included measures including a VAT cut, 
possibly deferring next year's planned um, increases in corporate taxes, possibly boosting oil and gas activity in the North Sea as well. Whatever it might be, it might it's going to be important for the UK because the energy crisis is hitting UK household budgets probably harder than any other country in Western Europe. And that's due to um, our reliance, heavy reliance upon gas to heat homes uh, and indeed to produce electricity. Vast majority of UK homes, around about 85% or so, use gas to provide heat. Uh, that's a legacy of the exploit exploitation of the North Sea gas fields ending, uh, which are now in decline. And that compares the likes of Germany and France, which have fewer than 50% of their homes being heated by gas. So very much pressure then on the UK government to do something to sort out. Well, what could be, if you believe, some of these forecasts, inflation going up as high as 20% or more in January, unless they actually do something to, to deal with the, the, the rising, rapidly rising cost of energy. Leaks today actually suggested that we will see some kind of freezing in household energy bills for possibly 18 months, and that will come about via government loans to the energy companies. That's going to cost an estimated, at this stage, it's all kind of sort of looking in the sky because not sure what the numbers are going to be, but it's an estimated 100 to 130 billion sterling. And to put that into context, that compares with the, the 70 billion entire package for the COVID furlough programme we saw introduced in uh, 2020 and 2021 during COVID. In addition, there's now a possible 40 billion sterling aid package to businesses as well. So wherever you want to chop this up, it comes as being a really big hit as far as the public sector deficit's concerned. Now, as it looks like these are going to be in loans, it may mean that the longer term implications for public sector borrowing may not be that great, but certainly at a time when rising interest rates so already adding tens of billions sterling to government debt. Um, it's not exactly what they want, particularly those conservatives who are desperately hoping to, uh, to get public sector borrowing back under control again. Now, in terms of interest rates, I'll quickly mention next week, of course, we'll get the Bank of England meeting. Um, it looks like we'll probably see another 50 basis points out the bank. Could a bit like the ECB be 75 basis points. And almost in either event, it looks likely to guarantee that we're going to see a recession sooner rather than later. If you remember that the Bank of England, their last um, NPR forecasts indicated they expect GDP in the UK uh, to contract through from the fourth quarter of this year right through the end of 2023. So with that prospect, uh, together with what a new prime minister facing what is still a very badly split conservative party, we've got spreading industrial unrest due to rocketing prices and in the ongoing spat with uh, the EU European Union over the Northern Ireland Protocol. It's no wonder that the pound is under so much pressure and a bit like the euro, the falling pound is also adding to the Bank of England's problems in trying to contain inflation. Okay then, well I guess we've been talking for long enough, so let's call it uh, an end for today. Um, I suppose looking at the big picture, um, as I mentioned already, we've seen a lot of economies around the world actually introducing measures to help with the cost of living process. But the bottom line is that without a fundamental shift in the demand and supply balance, energy prices are likely to underpin inflation for a long while yet. Interest rates will rise further and so will government borrowing. 
and that at a time when quantitative tightening from the central banks is already reducing bond demand, all of which makes for a potential volatile outlook for the global economy and financial markets, and one that requires investors to track the economic data even more closely than ever. So do keep up to date with all the market movers and shakers, and make sure you follow Econoday's global economic calendar. So on behalf of Terry, Max, Braun, and me, thanks as always for listening. We look forward to seeing you again next time. Bye for now.